0: Welcome. Welcome back, everyone, to the fifth episode of my weekly podcast, Writing Through the Pain. This is your host and Winnipeg multidisciplinary artist, Ingrid D. Johnson. Thank you, everyone, for joining me as I discuss, explore, and discover what facing and slowly healing after the trauma of childhood sexual abuse looks like in several areas of adult life. Thank you for choosing to go on this healing journey with me. Would you like to show your support for this podcast? Then please subscribe, leave a tip in any amount, or become a monthly sponsor by contributing $5 or more a month through our PayPal link. Our PayPal link is paypal.com forward slash PayPal me forward slash ITC sponsorship. In return, you will receive a quarterly newsletter starting on October 1, 2020, a download code to my album Visions and Dreams, and 10% off all new In The Closet Productions products and services. Every dollar contributed will be used to produce inspiring original music, live music shows, speaking engagements, this podcast, and other creative projects that help to draw awareness to the impact of childhood sexual abuse. Thank you for your wonderful support and now part five of my story with a special interview with my friend and also retired child abuse therapist, Kathy. Hi Kathy. Hi Ingrid. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast and choosing to do this interview with me. Um... I know when I introduced everyone to the podcast, I said your name is simply just Kathy, but obviously you have a last name, so I'll let you introduce yourself fully. Well, my name is Kathy Hudak. Great. (laughs) 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 Okay, and... um, I'm sure there's people out there who want to know like, what type of work um, you've done over the years and just your experience and what brought you into the field. But before we do that, I thought it would be awesome for people to get to know you first on a little bit more personal um, note, like by your background. So can you tell us a little bit more about your background? Where did you grow up? What high school did you go to? Things like that. Okay.
1: <laughs> Well, I grew up in a tiny little house in the North End, along with um, six siblings and myself.
0: Wow. Six. (laughs) A lot of kids. Oh
1: Yeah. And, um, yeah, by the time I got to high school, actually, my parents sent me across town to St. Mary's Academy.
0: Oh, okay. Which
1: was quite a bus ride.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) And what was that
1: like? It was actually a relief, because, um... I, I was somewhat picked on in junior high, kind oh, okay. of, you know, the grade six, seven kind of thing. And so going to an all-girls school where I wore a uniform so I couldn't be made a fun of because of my clothes. Because yeah. um, we did not have a lot of money with all these kids. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so my clothes were not up to what the other kids tended to wear. So wearing a uniform was made me just like everybody else. Awesome. And so um, yeah, my life improved hugely once I moved on to the all-girls high
0: school. Hmm. <clears throat> and um, when you were going through school, were there certain um, classes that you took in high school that kind of made you start thinking about like college or university and what you well, like, what type of um uh, things you'd like to do long term? Like, well as, the experiences as an
1: adult? in high school that mostly moved me towards social work was the volunteer work that I put in. Oh,
0: okay. The I'll course that, that was
1: most um impactful actually I didn't take at St. Mary's Academy, I took at Kelvin because they didn't offer it at uh, at Saint Mary's.
0: Okay.
1: And that was um human geography.
0: Oh. And I've it's never heard sort of an
1: introduction <laughs> it's an introduction. It's kind of like Somewhat like anthropology, it's okay. sort of looking at the cultures of the world okay. and uh, the different peoples of the world. And um, uh, that the teacher in that class actually inspired me to travel. He oh. attempted to try- inspire the entire class to travel. He said, If you are interested in culture and interested in knowing about people around the world, you need to go. You can't learn that from a book. He said, You must go travel. He says, it's mm-hmm. You can travel cheaply. You can stay at youth hostels, yeah. you can hitchhike, you can,
0: <laughs> you can um, get a job on a fruit ferry. <laughs> so, Aww, wow. Uh, I didn't know that about you, that it was a teacher inspired your travels. Yeah. I, obviously, you being your friend. Well, I had
1: always wanted to travel. My dad used to talk about his travels during the war. Um, he didn't talk about any of the bad things in the war anymore. more just talked about the oh, beautiful the places he saw. Awesome. And, um... And so I always thought I'd like, I would love to travel, but I thought it was beyond me. I thought it was something that you could only do if you either join the services mm-hmm. or are rich. And so having this teacher say, hey, look, you can travel on the cheap. <laughs> I thought,
0: okay. <laughs> the world is accessible. So he gave you some tips on how to do it in a cost-effective kind of manner. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, great. Okay, so you met this teacher, he inspired you to travel the world, and how did um, him inspiring you to travel the world lead to you wanting to have a career in social work after high school?
1: Well, I think it was partly the fact that when you travel, it expands your vision of people, and you also see a lot of poverty and hardship, and, um, and it inspires you to want to do some good in the world, to do something to make the world a little bit of a better place.
0: Okay, just from all the people that you yeah. meet.
1: The, the other thing that really moved me towards social work, one is um, a very good friend of mine who was going to social work and whose mother was a social worker who, who I admired greatly. And, um, and I did quite a bit of volunteer work during high school. I was Going to, um, the Canadian Mental Health Association had what was called an open door club. Because this was back in the uh, early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, when they were finally depopulating the mental hospitals.
0: Oh, wow. How did, like, what did that look, look like for them to do that? Well, it was a combination
1: of, they had, they learned, they, someone did an experiment, I think it was at Suffolk Mental Health Hospital and took all the patients off their meds and found that half of them were actually fine.
0: Without medication? Without the medication, because the main medication
1: before that was more like (laughs) things to keep people quiet and and easy to manage. And so, yeah, they found that some had already recovered without anybody realizing it. And they also discovered new um, medications, antipsychotic medications, that made it possible for people who had been previously thought they could only be managed in the hospital, able to live both in the community. Oh,
0: nice! And
1: so, people who had been, though, in hospital for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years or more, um, didn't really, their main barrier (laughs) to functioning in society was um, finding places where they could just be accepted, relax, have a good time, meet other people. And so they um, had opened an open door club where they would provide, you know, opportunity to play games and chat and stuff it's like that, and socialize in the afternoons, and then in the evenings they would have dances. Oh, nice! So I would go, afternoons and evenings, quite often, <laughs> <laughs> and um, met fabulous people there, um, and. Um, the other, another kind of um, volunteer work I did, I was actually invited to. Um, I had attended a, a conference on um, Native issues, mm-hmm. um, and someone who taught at Stony Mountain Penitentiary and who was overseeing the Native Brotherhood meetings there yeah. was finding that. Many men would come to the meetings, but they would just sit, they didn't really say anything. So, we thought, How can I get them to interact? Yeah, liven people up. (laughs) So, (laughs) he decided, Well, maybe having some young people come in and do a panel discussion. I was 16. Oh, awesome. And um, he got my name off the list of attendees, youth attendees, at uh, the um, um, Native um, Awareness kind of conference. And, um, called me up and said, would you like to organize a group of young people to come out to, oh, wow. uh, Stony Mountain, uh, to the Native Brotherhood meeting and do a panel discussion on the white paper on Indian affairs. Oh, Which wow. was, uh, a paper on Indian affairs that was brought forward by Trudeau and Chrétien okay. back then. Okay. Um, and the idea was to eliminate reserves, treaties, native status, and everything. Oh, wow. And at the time, I thought this was a great idea. You know, I felt like having reserves was sort of like apartheid in South yeah, Africa. Yeah,
0: separation. And
1: I thought that, you know, taking away, that would be a step in the right direction. And so and so did my fellow young people, <laughs> young white people. <laughs> and we, So we went down there and talked about how we thought this was a marvelous thing. Well, every single person in that room stood up. One at a time to set us straight.
0: Oh, And to God. let us know, okay,
1: you sort of, why like, you keep forcing us into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces of land. Now you want to take this away too. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we have certain rights that were sort of granted us by treaties and you haven't been like honoring them, but now you're just going to take them away. Oh, <laughs> so you never, it's like, anyway, so they really, fortunately, we were educatable. Oh, So, good. <laughs> so we listened well, and good. learned well from them. And, um, yeah. Good. That we, sounds really exciting. A good like back
0: and forth exchange. And it was yeah. a, it was
1: um, a very eye opener. was Very much um, um, something that we learned a lot from. So <laughs> they were educating us, and I think that was like sort of sort of them noticing that we both needed <laughs> to be straightened <laughs> out, <laughs> yeah. and also that we're open to that. Yes. I think that's what had them quite eager to uh, to say something. Yeah.
0: Yes. That sounds like an awesome experience. It was. So how did that experience like shape your journey once you entered into university and and, or college?
1: Well, I was very interested in well the two areas that I had been um, most involved in for my volunteer work was mental health and um, Native Affairs. And so I was interested in both those areas okay. quite a bit. Okay. Although where I landed was <laughs> child welfare initially, because yes. child welfare at the time, anyways, and probably still is the probably the largest uh, employer of um, um, social workers. Yeah. So that was sort of where the jobs were.
0: And did you think that that's where you would have end up, or did you have in mind a different vision of what your education would be and your career pursuit?
1: Well, as I said, I sort of hope to work either in mental health or in um, um, Native Affairs. Yeah. Although, child welfare, being what it is, yes. includes all of the above, plus oh. much more. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so so it's actually so. like we in <laughs> <at> everything.
0: <laughs> okay, so... From what I like, our relationship goes back years since I was a kid, and now I'm 44, gonna be 45 in November. And ever since I've known you, you've always been this wonderful, nurturing, very um, wise, very loving, patient um, type of person, which is the perfect sort of person to have when you're going into this um, journey of healing and wholeness and, and getting therapy. And I know when I met you, Uh, I didn't really trust many people but something about your spirit and how you were as a person made me feel like it was safe to talk safe to to open up and to share the trauma that had happened to me Um, when you initially started doing therapy did you start off doing therapy or were you first like when I see social workers like the social worker I had were you uh, intake social worker like um, apprehension or like I'm not very clear on all like all the I guess different different forms of, of, yeah, for social work. So if you could clarify that a little bit.
1: Well, when, um, when I met you, Mm -hmm. I was actually, um, I was a child abuse coordinator at the time. So that was someone who, um, it was sort of an offshoot of the evolution of the child welfare system in Manitoba, Mm -hmm. um, which wasn't always enough. Yeah, it wasn't always in the way of progress. It would go up and down and up and down. Okay. But, um, I had
0: first... Sorry about the plane. It should be gone soon. Yeah. it's we'll it Over over Pass, pass over. <laughs> it's almost out of here. <laughs> Safe journey. <Yeah. laughs>
1: okay, good. good. Anyways, um... When I first worked in child warfare it was as a line worker um, and it was doing the child protection work. It was in a fairly enlightened agency that had um, basically divided the staff into workers that worked on preventative programs and workers who worked on the um dealing with the when children were in need of protection immediately. Okay. And that was me. Okay. So having a child protection worker.
0: Awesome.
1: And there was not a lot of I, I really didn't have the training or knowledge to be a therapist at that time. Okay, so this I, is something um, you acquired. That was, yeah, okay. that was something... Social work doesn't teach you how to be a therapist. Oh, I thought... They do have communication. Well, okay. I had not know out now, because I went... Okay. <laughs> when I initially went through social work, that was in the 70s. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, at that time, you know, you had some communication skills, programs. You learned about social issues. You learned about, um... um well, you learned that there that people could do social work in with individuals, with groups, or with communities. Okay. So it was more like, and um, you learned you took courses in psychology and sociology and those kind of things. Okay. Did
0: those and courses help you? The psychology. They're all, they're
1: all okay. um, relevant and helpful. And it's five o'clock.
0: Ooh, okay. I forgot five, my computer part is. of learning. <laughs> okay. okay.
1: Ignore that. Yeah. But um, um, where I where I got training in therapy actually was when I uh, moved to Regina, okay. and worked at Child Youth Services, which is a community mental health um, facility. Facility, yeah. okay. Well, it's a uh, yeah community mental health um, uh, program. Okay, and um, there we we given a lot of opportunity to learn a lot. Okay, hands we were on. Imagined, It was a, it was an interdisciplinary team, so there were psychologists, oh, uh, nice. psychiatrists, um, an occupational therapist, um, a, a psych nurse, a, and a number of social workers. Oh, yeah, wow. So there were like yeah. a variety of, of disciplines people came from. Okay. People worked in two so it, in interdisciplinary teams okay, for any case, and they would. Draw whichever dis- from whichever discipline seemed relevant to the need of the child or family that we were seeing. Okay. And um, we uh, had the op- they had observation rooms, so we had the opportunity to work in a way that directly supervised by someone who could see our session okay. and provide feedback. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so um, anybody who ever went to a conference and they did encourage or you know, a workshop or any kind of training was we were encouraged to attend these. But when we came back, we were expected to train everyone else.
0: Oh, on what you would learn. Yes. So you really have to be. So we really, focused. Yeah. And, <laughs>
1: and you learn from everybody. Everybody learned yeah. from everybody else. And we had, you know, um, um, we belonged to other cross agency groups. Of oh, uh, people interested in like we had a family therapy interest group, where people would get together over their lunch hour once a month. Watch a video, do some discussion, do some you know workshopping, get some um, information from again other people who've gone to <laughs> some <laughs> conferences and we're sharing what they learned. Wow. So yeah, there was um, um, a lot of um, opportunities to learn there, and I got that's uh, I got to train in play therapy okay. under the guidance of a very skilled play therapist, a psychiatrist wow. who had specialized in play therapy for. Thirty odd years, wow! And um, direct supervision through the one-way mirror. Okay. It was just the best kind of training you've get, I
0: think. So you're hands-on doing the play therapy, and what about like play therapy? Did you like it? Like. I, I know you've done you've also mentioned like something called focusing
1: that I learned much much later I okay. didn't even know anything about that when I okay. when I met you, when okay. I was <laughs> you but I learned I learned like what one of the things about play therapy is similar to is skills that you can use in other kind of therapy too, okay. because it's basically very client-centered okay so what you're doing is following what the client is doing. Okay. So when you're when a kid when you're in play therapy with a kid you provide them with their tools, which is toys. toys. <laughs> <laughs> a variety of toys. And they basically work through their issues with the through play. play. Yes. And how you help them is mm-hmm. by be making it a safe place for them, by being very present with them. Yes. By noticing everything that they do and without asking? judgment. Oh
0: do you ask questions at all? Not really. Not really? Okay.
1: Not you know, other than very you have to be very careful if you're gonna ask questions okay. that it doesn't bring in any of your stuff.
0: Oh yes. Or that
1: you're not composing gen or uh, yeah, or mm-hmm. that can be interpreted as a judgment. Oh okay. You know, so and um and, and if kid asks you questions, yeah, you would again be very careful about your answer and more See what is coming. What is the reason from the for the question? What does the kid think about that question or about that answer? How would they answer it? Stuff like that. So it's it's very much looking at active listening and reflecting and and um, um, being present, um, being caring, being safe.
0: Okay.
1: Um, And uh, that works in terms of um, therapy with adults as well.
0: Okay. So how did you translate? play therapy into, like, adult therapy? not,
1: as I said, just the ways that I mentioned in terms of those skills. But also, like, um, there was uh, a contrasting kind of mode of therapy I learned while at Child and Youth Services was strategic family therapy.
0: Okay.
1: um, Or strategic therapy. Uh, on its own, which can be done with individuals or with families, okay, um, and which is very, very different. <laughs> <laughs> it is very directive, okay, And basically intervening in a much more directive and um, um, you are actually telling people to do certain things that will change the dynamics in their family. Oh, okay. And um, so you, you need to again first very much listen and learn and observe. Yes. But then look at, okay, what would make a difference here? What would edge things toward where the family really wants to go? Okay. And then
0: and tell them this is, is what you need to do. It's very sensitive, so you don't like. Yeah, yeah. Will you, okay. Yeah.
1: Will you get engaged? You get the family engaged yeah. with the idea, of, like the fact that you have, you really. First, make sure you understand what their concerns are yeah. and where they want to get to. Yeah. And, let, and make it clear so that they know so yeah. that you know that. <laughs> and then you um, um, will present the direction that you're going to give with, um, um, in a way that will engage and cause them to buy into doing that. Okay. And um, so that's, again, a
0: skill. And it takes probably a, a long time to... It
1: is actually um, a fairly short-term form of therapy. It, okay. is, it is something that can be quite effective. Okay. Um, uh, on specific... And it's usually, if there's a specific issue, mm-hmm. that it can, it can change things so that... So it's better. Yeah. So uh, things are are um,
0: improved. Okay. So thinking of your first job that you ever got into the field of social worker, uh, like social work, um, tell us how like how long like what position was your first position and how long did you stay in that yeah. position? Well, my first position
1: was a, a child protection worker. Yeah. At and Family Services, or back then it was called Children's Aid Society of Eastern Manitoba. Wow! <laughs> <Okay>.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's how old I am. <laughs>
1: you still look fabulous. <laughs> um, and um, uh, I was at that in that position for two years, okay. and then I left it because. Um, My husband moved to, my husband went to university at, um, in, um, Western Ontario. Okay. So I left it to move out there with him, um, for his final year. Okay. And because we weren't there long, I didn't stay that long. My next job in social work was back in Winnipeg. We were back, moved back to Winnipeg. And I was working as a child abuse specialist, I was working, again, child protection, but in the field of child abuse. And again, there I got to learn we had an atmosphere in our unit of sharing information and learning from each other and sharing anything we learned from any conferences we went to or Mm -hmm. workshops we went to. Um, And um, we also were part of a large interdisciplinary team of individuals from across the city including people from health, mental health, um, justice, policing, um, and uh, education. And all of us would get together to discuss individual cases uh, involving child abuse and to look at what would be the best route to go in that particular case. Okay. So we had an interdisciplinary consultation consultation on pretty well every case of child abuse that we dealt with. Oh wow. And This is back when there was one child abuse unit dealing with all of the child abuse cases in Winnipeg. Oh, okay. We were within the catchment area of our agency, which was everything except eastern, okay. east of the river, east of the, of the Red
0: River. Okay. And uh, what was the difference between that role that you were in, and you're very, like, did you see it was like a totally different type of mindset that you had to have when your first position that you had when you started social work to this child abuse? Um, well, it was it was just a more specific
1: um, focus and also where there was more to draw from in terms of skill. I mean, when I was working for Children's Aid the Abuse, it was um, a very... Um, the agency was ahead of others in terms of having um, community consultation and doing prevention work, okay. which is, I think, just so important. And yes. we, the child welfare system has gone a little bit toward doing prevention, and then they, then they draw back to yeah. doing just protection, and then they, they go back and forth as like waves. Okay. And depends on the government, and depends on you know, what the whether the papers are upset because they're taking too many kids into care or whether yeah. they're upset because we're leaving t- kids <laughs> in unsafe situations <laughs> and so so the waves move back and forth. Yeah. And that's become even more of an issue since um um child welfare beca- began um, only being provided by the government. So the all the private agencies were disbanded. Oh really? government took over
0: Okay. And
1: that makes it um, even more, I think, susceptible to the ups and downs of public opinion. Yeah. And to the changes of government. Yeah. So when it goes from a conservative government to an Then you definitely see a difference. Yes. Yeah. Difference in policies, different in even in laws.
0: Yeah. And what their focus is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell us um, a time when you felt you really made a difference in your position or in a client's life that you had um, like, and what that felt like for you in, in the type of position that you were in.
1: Well, the, fir- one, the one, one thing that comes to mind that made me feel very effective and like I was doing something worthwhile was when I first started doing group work with young um, teenagers who had been sexually abused okay. uh, in their families. So I, I had a survivors group oh,
0: nice. um,
1: uh, of teenagers and co- had a, had a co-facilitator, had an excellent, that was again in Child Use Services in Regina, where I had an excellent behind the one-way mirror
0: supervision okay.
1: by a specialist in group oh, work. Oh, so you can get some
0: feedback on what could make it better. specialist in group work. I was
1: sort of the specialist in child abuse and she was a specialist in group work Oh, great. and she was amazing in terms of being able to provide us with excellent support and supervision
0: okay.
1: and how to really um, run a group properly, <laughs> facilitate <laughs> facilitate group interaction and group growth and, and group healing and uh, so that was making a difference in a whole lot of kids' lives Okay. Um, okay. Uh, and that felt very, um, and you could see
0: Okay, the like, what in
1: example their would you say would like? Well, we actually, all, the other wonderful thing about working in the <laughs> mental health system um, instead of child welfare system was that it was very research oriented. Yeah. So when we had access, because we had interdisciplinary teams and psychologists and stuff, so one psychologist um, assisted us in, in um, selecting um, before and after testing that we could do. Yeah. Um, to be able to measure the growth of the, and uh, the, the healing of the um, kids in the group.
0: Okay. Wow. The
1: youth, the young people in the group. So they they objected to be calling kids. i so <laughs> actually yeah. will all that too. So young people, anyways. They, but they, there was real. evidence of it. Yeah, real Good. research
0: <laughs> evidence <laughs> of
1: of, um, of um, that. This was a benefit to them. Good. There was an interesting thing that came out though, and one of the things like <coughs> there was one piece of, of, the, um, um, one of the one of the the questionnaires that we gave to them that looked at people as being healthier if they if they have more of a, a, a locus of control that is they see themselves as responsible for what happened to them and what's going on in their life. Yes. Well, when a child has been abused, mm-hmm. it is not healthy to feel yeah. like they're responsible yeah, for that, because true. it's no. not the case.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that's misplaced yes. uh, responsibility and guilt. Yes. And so while the kids, you know, they see it, it's the sort of questionnaire seem to the results of that seem
0: to say, oh, well, you know, they went down in that.
1: No, 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 that was progress. Yes, it's good.
0: Yes, because it's not your fault. So, no, you shouldn't. Exactly. And as someone that goes through sexual abuse, you always, like, have that thought, like, you know there was some was there something I could have done or is is it because of me why this happened to me so yeah yeah. and then you carry that around inside you for years thinking that you're somehow to blame and then with that comes the shame so yeah yeah. okay and now thinking of like something that you did that made you feel like you're making a great difference and it, it sounds like that and reminds me of a group that I was in um through MATC where it was, we were teenagers and we all had been through the same thing and different ex- life experiences. But um, just having that group and that sense of I'm not alone, and exactly. there's other people my age who've also yeah. been through it really makes a difference when you go through that especially being a teenager and all the things that come along with being a teenager all the changes yeah it really helps to have a group of your peers who have been through the same trauma speaking about that trauma and how it's like shaping your development so i could see how that would be powerful especially with you running it so and then to have someone giving you feedback that knows how to run a group too, you. And, and,
1: and one of the things that I noticed when I was doing that group with kids, it was sort of like a leap to my next sort of big learning and then major thrust in my in what I wanted to do, and that was finding that the kids who did well, the kids who were healing, yes. um, were those kids who had some kind of positive relationship with their mothers.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, the kids who had been... Um, Placed in care and distanced from their moms, Aww. or whose moms did not believe them, yeah. or would not, could not support them,
0: yeah.
1: um, were had just such a harder time moving yeah. ahead. And so I thought, well, maybe. And I had actually I attended some training myself too, where they were doing groups for moms of okay. uh, incest victims, and. Um, and I thought, well, that's a very good idea. Yeah, that's amazing. And so I started doing group work with mothers and okay. kids. And um, and continued doing that during um, a lot of my career when I was still in child oh, okay. welfare. Good. Um, because I figured I could actually help more kids that way and in, a, in a deeper way, in a yeah. way. Because, um, um, yeah, having a mom, a supportive mom, was more important for a kid than any therapy you can give them. That's true. You know, so... And, and the moms it, need therapy when they... <laughs> you know, when you think of... One of the things you can think of is, like, um, post-traumatic stress. Yes. There's also a secondary post-traumatic stress. Yes. And, um, which is um, having someone you care about deeply going through post-right stress. Yes. Also, it's traumatizing to find out that a person that you Trusting. had loved and trusted mm-hmm. had, did, you know, um, abused your child, Yeah. you know, and that is something that is um, traumatizing to the mom. Yeah. Definitely. And so they need to get past their trauma. They also need to be able to recognize, like, one of the, there are myths about, about child abuse that, as, that, especially about sexual abuse. Yeah. Um, one of them was that, well, if there is, um, a, a dad or another person in the family sexual abusing a child, well, the mom must know. Yeah. And that's just not the case. Yeah. You know, <laughs> people who are predators of children are very good at keeping it a secret, at keeping mm-hmm. kids Keep silent, yeah. at intimidating kids to be silent, um, or do, you know, they can use intimidation, they can use force, they can use um, um, the child's feeling for them.
0: Yeah
1: they can use, <laughs> you know, they they um, use the child's trust in them, and then they can also manipulate the child's trust and make the child feel responsible, yeah. and that, you know, if, if it's the dad who is sexually abusing the kid, then just the fact of, you know, they can say what will happen and make it sound like this is going to be the worst thing. Yeah. They say, if you tell, I'll go to jail.
0: Yeah. Or well, we should. Or you'll destroy the family. <laughs> you'll destroy the family. Yeah. Your
1: mom won't believe you. Yes. Um, you'll have to leave. These, yeah. Mm-hmm. You'll be taken away. And oftentimes these things may happen. Yeah. And... Um, but to a little kid, it's super oh, scary. Oh, it's very scary. Yeah. 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 And the other thing is, is that those those things don't have to happen. Yeah. You know? Other than that, certainly, it is important to make sure the child is protected and that usually you know, ideally involves removing the offender. Yeah. Rather than the child.
0: Yeah. Um, But how often, like I mean, in my experience, I was the one that was removed from my home. It wasn't my stepdad who lived with us. I was taken out of my home and you know, I never went back. And that was often the case. Yeah. But how often do they do it where they do remove the predator from from the house? They
1: did create um um a um a new clause in the Child and Family Services Act, which was then I think called the
0: Child Welfare Act,
1: that did allow the perpetrator to be removed, Okay. but um, unless you had a mom who was immediately supportive and believing the kid, people were reluctant to do that, and I think that that was unfortunate, because when you remove the kid and leave the perpetrator in
0: influencing then you, the mom yes
1: <laughs> you're moving farther away from where you want to get to yes it's true you know and it well you want to be careful and avoid um if a if uh um if a mom is is not able to show any kind of protective yeah, kind true. of instinct so if you can't accept that the mom may have doubts yeah you know, and sort of allow the mom to have those doubts yeah. and let her know, you know. Um, it is hard to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, to believe. It. This yeah. goes on in many families with the mom having no idea. Believing that if it has happened, I would know.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> Which is what everybody else seems yes. to think. Yeah. Is as much um, a, a barrier to a mom believing that it happened.
0: You yeah, know? because the self-blame, then that would result from this yeah, was happening under my own earth. Part of did. it is
1: that, I think part of it is to avoid the, you know, that's too awful for it to be yeah. happening, and then it would be my fault. And part of it is, well, no, if it happened, I would know. Yeah. And so it couldn't happen, because I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's true and so part of in the same way that kids need to realize no this is not your fault moms need to realize a this is not your fault either yes and b um it happens all the time without moms knowing and it's not because the moms are neglectful or don't care or not looking it's because people are very good at covering it up
0: yeah and like in my scenario my mother worked two jobs she was a single, she was used to always working, yeah. and so that always brought her out of the house. Yeah. And my stepdad had one job, and it was I think nine to five or eight to four or something, so he was home a lot more than yeah. her. And so then, I, yeah, he had yeah, opportunity yeah. where she wouldn't be around, and yeah, know. very much so. And then I think how much of it plays into. If you had a parent, like some parents, I'm sure, some of them could have been victims of sexual abuse, too. So sometimes if you didn't deal with that trauma and then you have children, maybe that doesn't make you as, I don't know, willing to kind it can, of it can acknowledge set up,
1: that. It can set up some other barriers. It can sometimes leave someone with being very afraid of it. Yes. And almost seeing it even if it isn't there occasionally.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Um, to being feeling like, well, the kid isn't acting like I did when I had this happened to me, so this can't be what Happening. happened to this kid. Yes, that's <laughs> you <true>. know, <laughs> so it can be, you know, an kind of thing.
0: Yeah, a lot. So of So there, knows. it can
1: set up barriers, and also it can it can um, um, it can be just a, such a sore spot, such a yeah. huge scar, if yeah. it isn't dealt with. That it's like um it yeah it can be just a no 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 yeah i want nothing to do with
0: that or if it did we don't talk about it and we just move yeah. on and then there are there are
1: actually um kids that come from families where even it's even generational known to have through generations and mm-hmm. where the attitude is well this is just what happens yes you just gotta try and Deal Live through it. it and get past. You know it's like, and it's almost seen as, you know, one of the unfortunate consequences of being female or being a kid. or a
0: curse of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: and one of the things we want to not, you know, we've talked a lot mostly about little girls being sexually abused by men mm-hmm. because that's. A lot of the cases that happen, but okay. there are a lot of boys sexually abused by men yes. or women. Or and there are little girls self. that happen that are sexually abused by women. Women yep. are not um, immune to being yes. predators, unfortunately. Yes. Um, while they're outnumbered by the men who are predators, I think because we socialize men to be the aggressors. Yes. Um and um, and you know. It, it, we also probably know less about little boys for sexual abuse than little girls for sexual abuse because um, while there has been a fair amount of headway over the last few decades in letting people know that it's okay, you know, that this happens, yeah. that if it's happening to you, you should tell someone. Yes. I think there was a um, a misconception around how to do prevention for a while when they were doing programs in schools to teach kids to say no.
0: Yeah, I remember Which so. I think
1: was very, very um it sort of can make it even harder for kids who are actually being sexual abused because yeah. again it seems to put the onus on them to yeah. control the behavior of an adult. And I remember that really came home to me when I had um um uh, a mom who was just a wonderful and protective mom um, who um, brought in her kids when I was in child youth services in Regina, mm-hmm. and she brought in her two little girls um, for some help around the fact that they'd been sexually abused by an elder that she had trusted brought it into brought into her home and trusted. Oh. And these little girls she noticed they were as changes oh, yeah. in their behavior and that and she, ended up doing a sweet grass ceremony with them saying "Well, this is you know, the importance of just speaking the truth yeah. and no matter what and all of that and she got them then to talk about what was bothering uh, them and they said that they, they told about being sexually abused by this elder and she said, oh honey, I, I'm i so sorry that happened to you. Yeah. Um, oh, well, I don't understand why you couldn't tell me. And they said, well, we were waiting until we could say no. Aww. Because they were teaching a school. First say no, no, and then go tell someone. Oh, so oh my <laughs> goodness, no. <laughs> These were three and four-year-old
0: little Aww, girls. Little and
1: they're girls. supposed to try and say no, no yeah. to an elder who is like, and I, highly I get respected. what you're saying,
0: because uh, some people do put a lot of weight on, well, did, you didn't say no, like... Um, I remember in my adulthood, I had gone through a sexual assault, and I remember talking to, um, like, an attorney, or, um, and it was a female attorney, and I told her what had happened, and how I was asleep when it started, kind of, and then she's like, well, did you say no? And, When that had happened, it triggered all the other trauma that I'd been through, so my body was frozen. And trying to explain to her, well, no, I didn't say no, but I thought my rock-hard frozen body, you know, would be, you know, in my face. (laughs) But I just remember her saying, did you say no, and how that became so important that well you know then how is that person supposed to well that leaves you feeling that sort of yeah. plays into
1: you feeling responsible oh i did i did you I know mean. and and that is not fair <laughs> you yeah. know it is we, we we don't you know it's like if you want to really help kids being able to be assertive um what you should do is how <laughs> you, you hear it toward the parent and i used to do sessions with parents before they had the prevention programs in the schools yeah and I used to also advise people doing the prevention programs to say, you know, it's like, you have a right to say no. But yes. sometimes that's hard. Yeah. You, <laughs> yes. you're, not, you're not expected to try and handle this by yourself. Yeah. Get some help.
0: Yeah, come and talk. You know, them sometimes you me. need
1: an adult to tell them no. Yeah. And sometimes sometimes, you say no and they don't stop. Yeah. And sometimes you can't say no. Yeah. You're true. too scared to say no. Yeah. Or you're you just... It's just you don't know how out. to say Being no out. to an adult who's the boss of you. Yes, that's true. You know, so so how you can help your kids be um, assertive enough to be able to say no if someone is trying to touch <laughs> them um, is you let them say no to
0: you. Yeah.
1: You know, that you don't go say, go kiss grandma or go kiss auntie. Yeah. You say, you can say are and you train your auntie, the aunties and grandmas and grandpas to say, "Can I have a hug?" Yes. Rather than "Give me a hug." <laughs> <laughs> That's true. and if the kid says no, say to respect "Oh, that. how about a You know. Yes. <laughs> to respect the kid's boundaries. To yes. let the kid
0: to let the kid speak their boundaries yes. and to honor them. Yes, and boundaries are very important, especially for someone who goes through sexual abuse that's one of the things you have to learn to rebuild and establish for yourself exactly. and go through okay maybe my boundaries are too loose or too rigid but how to be flexible and all of that that you have to learn that you don't realize you have to learn those things until you're going through the process of therapy and recognizing relationships or situations where people infringed on your boundaries but because of the sexual abuse you didn't feel you had a right to say hey you know this is my boundary or even knowing where your boundaries are yeah so yeah well um that was like really interesting to like talk about that so next i wanted to also find out from you since you've had such a like a, an established career in social work and in therapy was there ever a time throughout your career where you felt discouraged and like you weren't making a difference like you'd hoped or where um you like just felt like maybe this isn't for me anymore or anything like that because I know when we're when we do good work sometimes there's times when we feel like is what I'm doing, you know, helping anybody or, you know. So if you have one of the big challenges in this field is the fact that
1: <coughs> excuse me. It is a field that involves many disciplines. Mm-hmm. And um the discipline that is kind of important to this field, but is not working well, mm-hmm. is the criminal justice system. Okay. Because um, the fact is that very few of even known cases, yeah. of, I mean, not only are there many cases that are not known mm-hmm. of sexual abuse because um, people do not feel safe to come forward, but of the cases that, that, that do come forward, very few. Um, result in even arrest, much less conviction, yes. um, of the offender. And at the same time, there is an insistence that all cases must need to be criminal dealt with by the criminal justice system.
0: Yes.
1: So we have sort of the disadvantages of getting the criminal justice system without the advantages, without the benefits that it can bring. Yeah. In terms of because we are, have not got very good at getting convictions on them. There are places in the world where they have gotten better at that. I did some training uh, in Seattle, in Washington, where they got to be very good at uh, both getting convictions on sexual abuse cases and at providing offender offender treatment. And those are very much tied. And one of the things that they (coughs) developed there, or they used a lot there, it's something that could be used here, but <laughs> hasn't much. Yeah. and that is what they called um, deferred sentencing. So they would have a, they would have um, as something that was that lawyers and prosecutors and judges were all aware of. Yeah. was that um, a, a, a good way to handle sexual abuse cases? Was to offer the um, alleged offender. The opportunity to plead guilty, okay, take responsibility, yes, go to therapy, yes. and not be sentenced until completion of therapy or until okay. they how failed, would, it, they, they that kicked out of therapy. Okay, and that way, if a person is going through care, therapy, keeping all to all of the um, restraints that are on them in order to prevent them from being able to um, continue to abuse kids, okay. and that includes things like never being alone with kids. Yes. Um, and, Would they go and on not keeping registry? it a secret, not letting people know, not, not hiding them? Would they go the on fact. a registry, then, if they choose to do that? Or you not? know, a registry isn't the important thing. Okay. Pe- reg- people, uh, uh, the child abuse registry is something that I kind of see as a... Um, A way of making people feel safe without actually making them safer. safe.
0: Safe, oh, okay. It
1: is. It is a way of okay. saying, okay, now we have this this um, list, so that now um, schools won't hire people who Who you know, don't Okay, but at the same time, who lands up on this registry? Those who admit. Yes. Those few who get convicted. Yes. Um. Most of the most dangerous offenders would never get on the registry because they have a right to appeal
0: getting on it. Really? Oh yeah. I, I thought if you were convicted automatically, you not were if you're addict. convicted, but that's a small percentage okay, of, okay, of, okay. A small percentage. And what do you think is the obstacle um, that keeps more people from being convicted? Because I know my, I know my stepfather was convicted he served six months which to me seems like nothing really when you think of the um, impact it has on your overall life as yeah the seriousness yes. of the crime he, so he basically you know
1: raping a child many many times yes gets six months
0: yes which is that wh- seems
1: and, and, and I don't think people realize that I think people figure that if someone was convicted of raping a small child yes. on multiple occasions yes they would go to jail for life yeah not that that's what I figured should happen, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but, um, but you think it'd be more severe? But when you
1: when you have a deferred sentencing program, then what you have is incentive for an offender to actually do the therapy. Okay. And um, you need it to be incentivized because therapy for a sex offender is not fun. Yeah. It it involves facing what they've done. Done. Yes. And face taking on the shame of that and yes. taking on responsibility for the harm they cause. Yeah. And looking at that.
0: Yeah. And that is not <laughs> No, it's not easy. That is not,
1: not easy, especially for those who are most treatable. Yeah. Um, because those are people who still have a conscience. Yes. And who have been managing to carry on this behavior by fooling themselves. Either that
0: what they're, doing, that, what they're doing is
1: okay, or else completely compartmentalizing it so they don't think about it except when they're doing it. Yes. You know? Um, so there's all sorts of
0: you know like defenses that.
1: that people develop to allow them to carry out this behavior and you got to break those down
0: see that leads into my question about do you think that somebody who has done things like that is that someone that could be rehabilitated many can okay. not all okay if
1: someone um, there you know if someone is um, a true sociopath that has no conscience yes and no then then um, well you can Certainly get more in control of their behavior, get them more in control of behavior due to um, if you have a criminal justice system that's actually working. Yes. (coughs) And they know that if they don't, you know, comply with all of the um, constraints which mean not keeping it a secret, you know, um, not being around kids alone, etc., that you're at least controlling their behavior. Yeah. Way better than sending them to jail for six months and then having them come out (laughs) with no restrictions (laughs) that keep them from continuing to abuse kids. That's true. You know, (coughs) add a little more trauma to their life, which because, you know, people who are sexually abused (laughs) kids generally are are, are people who have been traumatized themselves in some way. Yeah. You know, they're not healthy individuals.
0: Yeah, and they haven't ever gotten the help they needed in order not to pass that on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. Okay, well... Uh, I had quite a few more questions to go ahead with, but I thought, I think this might take a part two. (laughs) Maybe we do need to do a (laughs) two-parter. I think so, because, I mean, you've provided so much good information, and, um, really, like, even thinking about my own experience, things that I went through, and then the way you're describing it from your standpoint, it, it, like, I think it's something definitely, you know, the audience would like to know more about, so we're just going to choose to continue into episode six and learn more about uh, your journey as a social worker and um, what that was like for you and uh, so I guess we'll have to stay tuned for part two of this interview so thank you so much Kathy all right forward to to part two Did you like this fifth episode? Then please stay tuned for part two of my interview with Kathy on the next episode of Writing Through the Pain, My Story Continued. Catch us every Wednesday evening. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues, family members, acquaintances and friends. After all, you never know who this podcast might speak to, inspire, uplift, inform or help to break their silence about an incident or incidents of childhood sexual abuse in their lives. To leave a message about an episode of this podcast, or to become a potential guest on the show, please message me at anchor.fm forward slash Ingrid D. Johnson forward slash message. Thank you again for listening. Thank you for supporting my mission. Good night and God bless you all my friends.